This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. You're watching CBS. Shares of CBS trading lower today. This after Les Moonves, who, of course, led CBS uh, really to the top of the TV industry with a a lot of successful shows, uh, said he will uh, step down from the business he's run for more than 20 years after being accused of sexual harassment and running afoul of his biggest investor. So what does this mean for CBS specifically and really the overall media landscape? Nabila Ahmed is media M&A reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio right here in New York. On the phone in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Eric Gordon, professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Welcome to both of you. Nabila, um, not a complete surprise, right? This has been leaking out, I feel like, for a while. So I guess what's the takeaway and what it means for CBS as a company? What it means for CBS as a company is that it now has a totally new board of directors as part of this negotiation. So there were two sets of uh, settlement talks going on. Remember, CBS was at war with Sherry Redstone and NAI, which controls the company, and the board was trying to strip NAI of its control of the company, really led by Leslie Moonves. So him being out of the picture is one side of the story. The other side is that she then gets to renew the board, and also she's promised not to initiate a merger between CBS and Viacom for two years. That doesn't mean that the board itself can't initiate that merger, right. and obviously doesn't mean that it can't explore other uh, partnerships or, you know, takeover talks with other companies. Well, and I want to spin this ahead to what it may mean for further M&A, especially given the makeup of the new board. But before we get to that, Eric, come on in and talk about this departure, uh, this obviously forced departure in the context of some other failings and fallings and all that uh, all that stuff. Put, put movements in some, in some context here for us. You know, it's a lot of money and there's a lot of protests, but it's not the first time around and it's not the first time around in the entertainment business. Think about Disney. Mm. Um, uh, this is uh, this is when it would be good to have your morning guy on. Um, <laughs> Disney, Michael Eisner was running Disney, hired his buddy Michael Ovitz to be president of Disney. Fourteen months later, not a long gig, a lot, lot, lot shorter than the lesses. Uh, Ovitz leaves with a $140 million severance package. It's about $300,000 a day. Um, That one ended up in court. Right, he did, yeah. There were a lot of problems. It ended up in court, and amazingly to people who aren't lawyers, and even to some people who are lawyers, the court said, it's okay, he can keep the money. So wait, do we know how much Les Moonves is, is walking away with? They've set aside $120 million. Right. However, it, he, it depends how much, of, how much of that he gets will depend on the outcome of the uh, investigation into the sexual harassment allegations. Because the money's been whittling down, right? There was a much bigger number. And then we yeah, so under be- his contract, he was due about $180 million and actually could have got as much as $287 million <sighs> if he hit uh, certain targets, etc. But now, because of the sexual harassment, harassment um, investigation that's going on, that money's just been put aside, and who knows whether he actually ends up getting it or not. That will be dependent on the outcome of that investigation, but also he has to give $20 million of that to 
towards a charity or an organization um, that is sort of uh, helping with the Me, the Me Too, Too yeah. movement. Yeah. Yeah. And Eric, as Nabila talked about at the top, this is a very different board going forward. What do you expect them to do, especially given the makeup of these new additions? I expect them to do whatever Sherry Redstone wants them to do. Um, and, and who knows what that could be, because that, that changes back and forth. But I think uh, there'll be some combination of, of Viacom and CBS, either two years and one day after the standstill, or maybe earlier if Sherry finds a loophole, unless Sherry decides that's not in the best interest of, I guess, all of the shareholders, or, or maybe Sherry. Well, what is the better comb- company? Like, I find that- Only in corporate America. You're together, you're apart, you come back together. Um, Nabila, what are you hearing from the folks that you talk about, about what's what's a better... CBS, Viacom, is it together, separate, what? Well, our sources were saying that one of the reasons Redstone had been pushing this deal to start with or wanted the boards to consider the deal was because together they make a better prospect for another merger partner. So there was some talk at some point that you merge these together, then sell both together to someone like a Discovery, for example. And to Eric's point, I will say that my sources are saying very much that this is an, the directors are now independent of Redstone and Les Moonves. Remember that the board previously was all basically friends, you know, Les Moonves' friends and supporters. Right. Um, so they have sort of stressed that independence and have also said that this board used to have only three women out of 14 members. They now have a lot more. They've they The average age used to be 73, so they've brought that down. You know, they've got now people from, you know, like Barclays, Hasbro, very reputable companies. It's a board who specializes in M&A from what I understand too now. So exactly. (laughs) Talk about kind of uh, foreshadowing. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, as we've been talking a lot about this in the media world, you can't really stand still at the moment. The environment is changing so rapidly. And really, both of these companies have lost a lot of time Mm -hmm. because of this to and fro. I mean, how many years have we been talking about this company? Many, many, many years. (laughs) So, Eric, about 30 seconds left. What does this tell us about governance right now? You know, so the state of corporate governance is a mystery to those of us who aren't lawyers. It doesn't seem to be all that related to the public's sense of morality, the public's sense of what duty means. It's it's a ba- bunch of technicalities and sort of this fiction that we don't, we the courts, don't want to second guess the directors. So as long as they don't do something totally self-serving or completely ridiculous, we'll let them do whatever they want. I always think of my 15-year-old, you know, actions have consequences unless there's consequences. <laughs> you know, you're not penalized in some way, then it's going to happen again. Uh, Eric Gordon, thank you. Professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan on the phone from Ann Arbor. Nabila Ahmed, thank you, thank you. Media M&A reporter at Bloomberg News. She is in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Check out her work at Ms. Nabila Ahmed on Twitter. This form of investing definitely has been gaining momentum over the last couple of years. I threw out a number uh, before the break, $23 trillion, sustainable investing assets reaching $23 trillion at the start of 2016. That's a 73% increase from four years before. Let's get into this and find out why more investors are signing on. Uh, here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio, Guillaume Mascoto, he's vice president and head of ESG investments at American Century Investments, $170 billion in assets under management. Uh, welcome. Thanks for having me. 
You know, I it's interesting. You go back a few years and people thought it was just kind of a cool thing to do. Maybe put, you know, something in, you know, right. that is doing good for the environment. It has taken off dramatically. What has changed? Because I'm curious if it's it all about different formulas, different ways of describing what impact investing is all about, and then performance. Yes, and that's a very good question. So obviously, um, ESG is no longer a niche market. Uh, there was a recent study put out by McKinsey that showed that uh, around 26% of the total AUM in the world is now aligned to an extent uh, to ESG principles or criteria. Um, and as you've mentioned, this is a, a pretty high um, increase um, over the past couple of years. And we see uh, four big trends um, that's driving the interest uh, for ESG investing. The first one is that there's new, uh, there are new business risks that are arising now. And, and those business risks are actually stemming from non-financial issues, uh, be it climate change, rising sea level, sometimes it's health and safety, and of course, we saw most recently cybersecurity. And so investors are understanding that uh, it's important to look well, at these. Well, because it's uh, impacting them, right? Correct. It impacts. Uh, you know the, the, the market valuation of companies it also impacts the value of debt um, and so investors want to make sure that uh, the asset managers that they uh, do business with understand these risks and factor them in into their investment process the second one um, definitely is um Technological innovation. Uh, over the past couple of uh, you know centuries, technological innovations uh, have always impacted uh, supply-demand fundamentals and altered business models. So um, now that you have um, well-established industries out there that are facing, um, you know. Um, emerging risks arising from technological innovation, um, that gets a lot of um, investors potentially at risk if those companies are not investing in the viability of their business model. Hmm. Uh, a good example of this is the energy sector and the utility sector. So obviously, um, as you see more and more rise of renewables into the market space, you see, of course, the technological innovation around smart grid, power storage, um, that creates potential risk of customer defection. Uh, there was a very interesting example right now with Apple, um, Apple launching a company called Apple Energy. Mm -hmm. And they are using their own electricity from renewable energy and even um, generating excess supply and selling that back onto the grid. So, you know, energy companies and power companies so are cool, going right? yeah, to yeah. have to, you know, eventually ad uh, adjust to that. Because otherwise, if they don't, that's going to um, have I, an impact. I call it the Uberization of the world. You have to have these companies <laughs> kind of figuring out a different way to do something that we accepted for such a long right. time. Exactly. And, and you know, a, a good example, too, of that that is back a couple of uh, you know hundreds of years ago you had you had a lot of people being employed to light all of the you know the lights in the streets with with candles and now it's it's all changed so it's important for mm -hmm. investors to um, to also have uh, you know um, asset managers who understand that and invest in the companies that are focused towards the future so that's that's the the second big trend the third big trend is social media as I, you know right now investors um, have access to real time global issues so if there's something impacting their companies they're going to know about it so they want to make sure that organizations Positional transparency, uh, compliance, of course, ethics, risk management, all of these um, intangible factors, if you will, have to be factored into uh, the traditional um, you know, quality factor um, right. that, that, that takes place um, into the fundamental research process. And finally, the, uh, the big one, in my opinion, is the rise of millennials. Um, as we all know, uh, you know, millennials are increasingly taking um, important position in the financial landscape, business landscape, political landscape from uh, baby boomers. Right. And for, for that generation, it's a transnational generation. They're all um, sensitized to the same issues, and those issues are globalized. And so... Um, 
So hang on a second, sure. Jason, come on in. Well, I wanted to ask you, you know, one quick question before we let you go, which is it does feel like it's become much more measurable. You know, that that was one thing that was missing for a long time was that there weren't the right Good point. metrics. Yeah. What are the metrics briefly that people are really looking at to ensure that they can invest profitably here? Depends on the industry. So every industry um, has a different risk exposure to uh, uh, ESG issues. But one of the main ones is definitely the independence of the board. Mm. Uh, gender di- diversity also on the board is important. They're going to want to look for um, the proper risk management procedures and control when it comes to, say, climate change risks, uh, water stress risks, cybersecurity risks. So those are going to be important metrics. And they want to ma- make sure also that those metrics are consistently well-reported over time to avoid having restatements. For example, you may have companies that are going to say, well, this year we're going to do a ESG report, but the year after they may say, yeah. we're not going to do it. Just quickly, 15, 20 seconds, executive compensation, especially in a day when we see less Moonves and you know leaving CBS, how big of that is becoming an issue? Just quickly. It's very important in so far as that it's aligned with total shareholder return. So if you have total shareholder return that's going up um, and compensate, corporate, uh, executive compensation also going up, then we see this as an alignment. But if it's the opposite, and we see that potentially is a risk to investors. we got to run. Hey, thank you so much. Guillaume Mascoto, he's VP and head of ESG Investments over at American Century Investments. <laughs> Wipe out. You know, it's a wipeout these days, or at least it feels like it. But earlier in the year, Carol, if yes. I may extend the metaphor rather painfully, people were riding high on cryptocurrency in general. So to help us make sense of that, Camilla Russo joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. She is a Markets Live blogger as well as one of our key cryptocurrency watchers here. So, Camilla, there's a very well-read story on the Bloomberg right now talking about Ether especially and its fall. It's the number two uh, cryptocurrency out there. What's going on that's driving that specifically down so much? Okay, so I think broadly for cryptocurrencies, it's been a really tough year um, as regulators have been really slow to um, embrace this or at least embrace cryptocurrencies as fast as the market was was hoping so people were really hoping for a bitcoin or an ether etf and that hasn't happened and not only that but the sec came out uh today um against or uh, i'm sorry over the weekend against uh sweden uh based um bitcoin and ether trackers uh, exchange traded notes not not um etfs um and it's always so funny because i always feel like a market says wait i don't want regulation i don't want oversight but they're actually looking for some rules right so that it can kind of become because it's such a great area that you know especially institutions don't know where where they stand when where they're trading this and i mean they obviously don't want to run afoul of regulators um and then for ether specifically that's ethereum's cryptocurrency um it's been an especially bad year for it because you know a a lot of these new tokens that um that were created in in the past year were done on top of ethereum Mm. Ethereum is a platform for creating decentralized applications and tokens. And when they did this, they were raising money in ICOs use, using Ether. They were taking in Ether. And so now when, they're, when they need to cash out to like build their products or just because they, they don't want to be affected by this market downturn, they're selling that Ether and that's pushing, ironically, the, the price of Ether 
down, even though that, that's what I, like okay. ICOs helped mm-hmm. it go up last year. But These now are the it's, initial coin offerings, right? Right, right, initial coin offerings. So that's what um, Ether's being especially hit. On top of that, um, Vitalik Buterin, Ethereum's creator, has come out recently sounding um, a little bit disappointed that uh, he hasn't really seen a lot of actual use of of the tokens being created on his platform. He, he said a couple of times, we've seen this market explode, but what's actually come out of it? And there was an interview on, on Bloomberg over the weekend where he said, um, you know, we're at a stage where most people have heard of blockchain. So we're not going to see this 1000x growth anymore like it it it, it it that explosive growth that that's on kind of people kind of the gee whiz and, the gee whiz factor right. is gone that's right and now the growth needs to come from actual use and adoption mm-hmm. and we've seen that you know be a lot slower than than people were hoping it is amazing i mean i'm just looking at all the various all, all the big currencies all the various uh, cryptocurrencies, the big ones, whether it's it's Bitcoin or Ripple or Ether. I mean, they are all down pretty meaningfully. Yeah. And, and it is such an interesting debate between, you know, they want they want to be against Wall Street in a lot of ways to sort of show that and, and certainly the, the big uh, centralized governments to show that this could be an alternative and yet really, really need this validation. And you start to see that the the Michael Novogratzes of the world and others, you know, maybe are a little bit more out on an island than they expected to be mm-hmm. uh, at this point. So what happens next? What what needs to happen to turn this around in some ways? Well, I, I think it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I just want to comment on what you said that, you know, the uh, Novogratzes of the world are on, on like more isolated than they than they had hoped. And uh, you know, just wanted to point out that big financial institutions are still exploring this yeah. space pretty heavily. We, we saw um, news on on City that they they want to start like they they want to build a mechanism to trade cryptocurrencies, um, but. Uh, the like the, the thing to to watch out for here is that they don't want to trade actual um, cryptocurrencies. It, it's kind of like. Um, it's it's a device to 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 gain access to it, but not directly hold it. Uh, and- DARs, right. digital asset uh, receipts, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so huh. that's an important distinction because it's what what happened with um, Bitcoin futures uh, being traded at the end of last year. There was a big hype around that, but in the end, it didn't help the price that much because it's it they were all they were cash settled settled securities um and so is this a derivatives market right and, and that means that's that, such an interesting point. right it, that means that yeah. people aren't actually buying actual bitcoins. They're, they're you know they're buying something that's you know linked to their price but not actually bitcoin is it like so, gambling right i don't actually well you're trying to take advantage of the trend with that without right. actually being exposed to the underlying yeah. element yeah. of it right and yeah. the goldman um trading desk and ended up being the same thing apparently uh, there, there was this huge speculation that Goldman was hoping, opening a crypto trading desk, but you know it it ended up being that they were actually looking at something similar to Bitcoin futures trading. Are we so. still having ICOs, initial co- coin yes. offerings? Are we still seeing we new are, coins? They, I coins? mean, th- this year was huge for ICOs. Um, they had the people. I mean, startups raised more than. All of 2017 by by I think June or July, huh. but that trend starting to slow 
a lot too. Uh, I, I, I think in August um, the, the, the numbers uh, went down a lot. So we were seeing a slowdown in that market too. Amazing. Camilla Russo. Thank you. Uh, you are, of course, a Markets Live blogger here and one of our go-to cryptocurrency reporters. Thank you so much for giving us that context. It's time to move on. Time to get going. Well, Carol, as you said earlier, we do have something of a theme going on today. Almost by accident, the news has gifted us with this uh, series of transitions. And yeah. one uh, that people are paying a lot of attention to is the announcement by Jack Ma that he is going to be stepping down from his executive chairman post. Going back to teaching, he, of course, has already relinquished the CEO job there at Alibaba. He is the richest man in China. And for some context on him and this move and the world of tech in emerging markets, we're happy to have Kevin Carter. He is the founder of EMQQ. That, of course, is an exchange-traded fund, an ETF, that looks at emerging markets in the internet and e-commerce companies. Kevin, great to be with you. Great to be with you again. So give some context for what Jack Ma and Alibaba have done. You have such a great sense of the entire emerging markets and uh, technology world. Uh, put, him, put him in context for us. Well, uh, he's a big deal. I mean, he's built a half-trillion-dollar company in 19 years and uh, done it in a fashion that I think is quite admirable. And, uh, you know, the, the recent news is – uh, just more color on his plans for stepping down. I mean, as you said, he, he turned over the CEO role uh, a few years ago and has been, uh, you know, well-spoken uh, in the idea that, you know, he wants younger people to, to lead. And uh, so I think it's just a, it's a, a timely and natural uh, step in the transition that's been, you know, pretty well uh, laid out. So, Kevin, as an investment professional, though, how do you take all of that in? Do you see it as a really smart move by what some would easily say a visionary who created this massive company so that he understands you got to kind of hand the reins on to the next generation? And he's been doing that over the last couple of years, right? Because he stepped back from the CEO position. Or do you get worried about that visionary moving further and further away? He's not going to go away. I mean, that's uh, for sure. He'll be around um, in terms of having you know certain executive responsibilities. He's stepping back from those, but you know, I think that, and he's you know, this has been part of the story. And he he spoke with uh, Emily, uh, you know, a few days ago about this. He has a long term plan for the company. He has a, a secession plan that is he said isn't perhaps well liked by uh, you know Wall Street for uh, some reasons. But you know, it's it's a a committee approach. It's a long-term uh, plan, and that's what you need here. I mean, this is a you know an incredible growth story. As all these billions of people uh, move up, join the consumer class, and uh, get their first computer in form of a smartphone and their first internet connection, uh, perhaps five G sometime soon. And you know they're leapfrogging the way we consume, and it's a you know it's a huge growth story, and it'll continue to be that. So, Kevin, as you look across the tech landscape, and I was intrigued with your background in part because you go all the way back to Robertson Stevens earlier in your career, Robbie Stevens, uh, as it was known back in the day. So you've seen a lot of tech companies come and go, for that matter. We're at a moment right now where there are some big existential questions around the likes of Tesla and other companies around the idea of succession, around entrepreneurs and founders being able uh, to let go. What is it tell us about the state 
of the entrepreneur in the in Silicon Valley from a global perspective? This news. Well, that's a great question, and and you're right, very timely. Um, you know, the biggest problem in emerging markets for investors is corporate governance, mm. right? You have uh, the large ETFs and indexes are dominated by state-owned banks, state-owned oil companies, and this is the problem with emerging markets. You have this uh, conflicted, inefficient uh, government structure, you know, government ownership and, and management structure. And Petrobras is all you have to, you know, talk about to to get that story, uh, you know, straight. Uh, down the middle. So these companies, these internet companies in China, in India, in South America, in Africa, they're led by entrepreneurs and they're largely backed by uh, U.S. institutional investors. So you get, you know, really from the jump, you get very good corporate governance. And so, and I think that the Alibaba, you know, news today is, is just a great example of that. I mean, these are thoughtful companies. They're focused on uh, shareholder value, and they're focused on you know making sure their businesses are of value and relevant, and you know helping to solve society's problems and make life easier. When you more generally look at the emerging market space right now, certainly as you well know, uh, in the news as of late, and I guess we're all trying to figure out where it all goes, what it, how it ends. Do you differentiate uh, between EM overall and EM internet and e-commerce companies, or can you differentiate? Well, we certainly do. I mean, we think the emerging market internet companies are the companies to own, um, and that you know, as mentioned, the the, the legacy economies, the dom, you know, the, the legacy part of the economies that dominate the indexes, are the types of things that are going to get caught up in the trade wars, right? Um, tires and steel and and whatnot. The consumer story is probably the most insulated story hmm. uh, from the so-called trade wars, and. Uh, b- but the stock market hasn't treated it that way. The stock market has punished all emerging market uh, equities, and uh, the, part, the companies that are part of uh, EMQQ are uh, also down about 25% from January, but the fundamentals remain quite strong. Right. Kevin Carter, founder of EMQQ, of course, the ETF targeting emerging markets, internet and e-commerce company, talking to us about the latest Jack Ma news, yeah. stepping out of the executive chairman role. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And we've got about 10 minutes left in this Monday U.S. trading session. So let's make sense of where we are. Alan Zafrin is Senior Managing Director and Wealth Manager at First Republic Private Wealth Management. They oversee about $121 billion. He joins us on the phone from Palo Alto, California. Alan, great to be with you. One element that I wanted to bring right to the fore because we love our music on this program is you cite the song Don't Bring Me Down, ELO, 1979. That's a throwback. So what does that tell us about the market right now? Well, hi, Jason. It, uh, well, for one, it tells you my age. Go back <laughs> to the 1970s. 
Uh, secondly, it's telling you that you've got a lot of pressure in the emerging markets, and the question is, is the pressure in the emerging markets in the here and now going to bring down the broader global markets? And I would argue, no. It's a head fake. Why? Um, well, if you look at the reality, South Africa is already in recession. You've got Turkey uh, has its own problems right now in Argentina. But collectively, they make up barely 2% of global GDP. You've really got to talk about Brazil, India, and the big gorilla China, which collectively are 25% of global GDP. So what, the reality we, is it, so what yeah. about China, Alan? And what if they are our next big financial crisis? That would be horrific. That would be horrific. Fortunately, that's highly unlikely to happen, and here's why. All that's happened is China is setting themselves up to grow quickly and domestically to offset all of the tariffs and trade impairments that may or may not fully go through with the U.S. or other countries. So specifically, they lowered their equivalent of the Fed fund rates by about 180 basis points in the past seven months. And what evidence shows is looking backward, when the Chinese currency is devalued, about six months later, their exports start to pick up meaningfully. They've also put in place significant increases in government spending, went from, from no growth to 8% government growth year over year. They've put in all kinds of policies to stimulate their economy. So if uh, history is any kind of guide, there's going to be more evidence of that growth showing up probably in the fourth quarter this year, first quarter of next year. That, coupled with very low valuations, is setting the emerging markets up for when psychology in the markets eventually turns. So you still like stocks here, right? Why? Well, put simply, if I'm buying a stock at 20 times earnings, I'm getting about five. If I buy stock at $100 and it generates $5 in earnings per share, I'm getting 5% back on my money spent. A 10-year treasury is giving me less than 3%. That 2% differential is much, much wider than historically average. And meanwhile, I expect my companies in the U.S. to grow by 10% earnings year over year. So at a minimum, I think if, if multiple stay at this level, I'm going to make 10% on my stock price and collect my 2% dividend. That's a heck of a lot better than 3% on a 10-year treasury. And you still like earnings growth at that level in the U.S., even given – potential trade trade wins <laughs> trade headwinds uh, out there what what do you make of all that well, I do like the growth. Bear in mind, it is slowing meaningfully. I mean, we grew earnings per share 23% year over year yeah. uh, in the last quarter, which, is, which, by the way, that's probably the peak in the cycle. But if we're in a world of modest inflation, full employment, but a Fed that frankly recognizes it can't rate, raise short-term rates too much higher, too much longer, we're still in the Goldilocks spot of the economy. Um, you know, even wage growth just picked up a bit. It turns out, if you look back over the last 50 years, when wage growth growth is somewhere between two and three quarters and three and a quarter percent year over year, the S&P goes up on average 15 percent in the next 12 months. It's telling you growth is good enough to be good, but not strong enough to be inflationary. We're kind of still in this sweet spot. All right, sweet spot. So your exposure to equities, have you upped it? Are you maintaining it? Where are you? Staying right down the middle of the uh, fairway here. Uh, what we have done is made sure we have high-quality duration, meaning high-quality bonds, which have historically served as a negative uh, correlation or a, an alternative movement to stocks in case things go the wrong way. So it's still staying in balance, and that's that's the key. You are at a t 10 years into the cycle, and uh, castles don't go up in the sky forever. So 
uh, stay balanced, but the near-term outlook remains uh, positive. So, Alan, look in your backyard there in Palo Alto. Obviously, the FANG stocks have been very much front of mind for all sorts of reasons, not just because of their growth, but because of you know Sandberg and Dorsey testifying last week on Capitol Hill. The technology story, still some room to run out there in Silicon Valley. What do you make of that? Well, I'm trying to put aside all the optimism, which is just inherent in being here. But, yeah, I still think these are meaningfully uh, valuable franchises with deep competitive moats where you can't replicate their businesses, playing on significant long-term trends. I mean, I would argue we're in the midst of an industrial revolution here. Uh, it's now the Internet, uh, and coupled with the strength from semiconductor uh, empowerment over time. But there's still growth there. And, of course, you're going to periodically get these emotional sentiments of downturn. But I still think things are up. The, the thing you cannot predict, regular risk. Yeah. I mean, if the government wants to trust bust uh, these companies, uh, you know, to an extent, all bets are off. And that's why I don't put all your eggs in one basket. But if you look at the inherent strength of these businesses, it's, they're undeniably strong with strong balance sheets and lots of opportunity for growth. Alan Zafrin is Senior Managing Director and Wealth Manager at First Republic Private Wealth Management. They oversee about $121 billion. He joins us from Palo Alto, California. Say he's a bull. You think? I think so. Pretty bullish. It's an interesting time because there were several stories I was reading in, and you know you can go either way in terms of uh, people's outlook on what goes on from here. So I don't know. We'll see. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.